I read a book, I try to write every once in a while, somebody gave me a book on writing, and it was Stephen King's book on writing. And he had a great principle to writing. He said, write what you want to read. It's really a great, it was great advice. Write what you want to read. And I think that advice is tremendous for preaching too. You should preach what you need. And if a lot of times when I write a sermon, I have a person in mind who I want to preach to. Well, today, my person is me. I need this. And I have a feeling you do too. Uh, the subject today is Joseph, the father of Jesus. And basically, the story is about him giving the responsibility of carrying the world on his shoulders. Meaning, he's responsible for the life of Jesus, the newborn king. And I think in the back of his mind, if he's like me, being a human being, when he's given that responsibility, I will bet you he asked this a hundred times. Can I do this? Can I do this? Can I really keep not only my son safe, but my wife safe? Can I really care for the Son of God? I have a feeling um, in the depth of your soul, you've asked this a number of times this past year. And really, when I face a new year, after a year like we've had, I'll tell you what, I wonder, can I do this? I read a meme the other day, it goes like this. You think 2020 was bad? Just remember... The new year turns 21 and can now legally drink. Could be bad. Could be bad. And so when you think about the future, and I think, uh, you know, when you think about last year, or think about just your capacity to survive, there is in the depth of our soul, I think, just fear, anxiety, trepidation. And behind all this is the question, can I do this? Can I actually make it. Well, after studying this passage, I think this is the perfect end-of-the-year sermon to get us ready for the next year. And the title is, God's got this. He's got this. And I'd like you to stand as we read the story found in the book of Matthew, chapter 2, 13 through the end of the chapter. I'm going to use the NLT today because it's great in a narrative form, and I'm going to read a couple passages from the Psalms, which handles it very well in the NLT. But here's the story right after the three kings, or the wise men, showed up. Starting in verse 13. After the wise men were gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up! Flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return. Because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother. And they stayed there until Herod's death. That fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. 
Rachel weeps with her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, the angel said. Take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel, because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said. He will be called a Nazarene. So you may be seated. So Joseph's Jesus' father... He was actually decreed by God to be Jesus' father. He wasn't his actual birth father, but he was the adopted father, you could say. He was given by God the singular responsibility to protect and raise the Savior of the world. That's pretty heavy. I think sometimes to really understand a passage, you need to kind of get into it. So try to empathize with me for a second of Joseph's plight. Imagine being Joseph, and he is given a dream in the night. And I want to use the night as a metaphor of when you are unsure, you're full of fear, and you really don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. So imagine being Joseph and you go to bed. While you're sleeping, God sends Gabriel to tell you to leave as soon as possible the city of Bethlehem, as soon as you can. Because it says he leaves that night. I can remember when we'd go on trips, uh, long trips with the family. My dad would often wake us up about 2, 3 in the morning at night. I can remember as a little kid getting in the back seat of our paneled station wagon, looking out the window, imagining all kind of monsters out there. Can you imagine being Joseph, walking in a road in the middle of the night with Mary and Jesus and wondering if Herod's soldiers are behind every bush? He also said, Herod is jealous. King Herod, the man who killed his wife and two oldest sons, is jealous about your son, and he wants to kill your son, and he probably wants to kill you and Mary too. Now realize, again, Mary's probably 15, 16. Jesus might be, it says up to two years old, but that's when they first saw the stars, so probably six months old. And then he says, uh, Joseph, I want you to leave immediately and go to Egypt. Go to a land you've never been. Scholars like to point out that, you know, this is probably in the mind of the, uh, like Joseph and the early scribe readers, of a metaphor, how Moses went to Egypt and went back to the promised land in the same way Jesus is going to Egypt and coming to the promised land. But I guarantee you, Joseph could care less about that. I don't care if it's a metaphor about what happened to Moses. I'm running from a man who wants to kill me. And then he's supposed to raise his son, son and he doesn't have much. A donkey. He does have gold. He does have gold. So the fate is the wor- of the world is on him, and I guarantee you he asks, can I do this? We all ask this one time in our life. I, I tried to think of two times in my life when I asked this, very, very specifically. And um, 
Honestly, sometimes fathers aren't given credit for what they pick up, but good fathers sometimes have the weight of the world on their shoulders. I remember December 18, 1993. December 18, 1993, I was on a red-eyed jet airplane from California coming back to Grand Rapids. I said I do eight days before, and my wife was sleeping in the air, airplane next to me, my new wife, and I wondered, can I really survive this wedding and marriage? Will she put up with me till I die? Does she even, she doesn't even know who I am, and I know who I am. Wait till she gets to know the real me. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do this. It was a heavy burden. But a heavier burden was November 27, 1996. It was at a Thanksgiving service over in the Blue Gym. In the middle of the service, my wife turned to me and said, I'm having our baby tonight. And I was running the Thanksgiving service. And uh, we got in the car, and it was starting to snow heavy, and I'm driving. I mean, you know, when you're, you're wondering if you're going to have the baby on the side of the road, and I'm like, I can't do that. It's a terrible fear I have. Drive to the hospital. Then you put that, the, the birth happens, and your wife's sitting on her wheelchair with the baby in her lap and the baby car seat, and you go to the parking garage, and you drive back, and you say, can I, I don't know if I can do this. Can I do this? Can I take care of a baby girl? Those sort of situations, this human and human life, human experience, we all face it. I would even say this. I would even say a human observation on my part, God is the most real to us when we are the most desperate for him. And in some sense, God allows that anxiety for the purpose of reaching out to him. Because if we didn't have it, would we reach out to him? Jared, Jared gave me a book for Christmas, and it's a powerful book, and here's what one little paragraph said. Consider your own life. When the relationship goes sour, when the feelings of futility come flooding in, when it feels like, like life is passing by, when it seems that our one shot at significance has slipped through our fingers, when we can't sort out our emotions, when the longtime friend lets us down, when we are laughed at by people. In short, when the fallenness of the world closes in and makes us want to throw in the towel, there, right there, we have a friend who knows exactly what such testing feels like. He sits close to us. He embraces us. He is with us. Solidarity. Our tendency is to feel intuitively that the more difficult life goes, the more alone we are. And we sink further into pain and we sink further into isolation. But the Bible corrects us. Our pain never outstrips what he himself shares in. We are never alone. We're never alone. And I think this truth is meant to happen to us all the time. 
In fact, it says in 2 Peter, there are seasons in our life where it will seem that God is so far away for the purpose of seeing how strong our faith is. I can't imagine being Joseph. But I do remember when my dad died, what that felt like, where my wife was incredibly sick, my son was in surgery, or I lost a job and I had to get a new one. God was close in those days. And I think the point of this passage is to remind us that God's got this. In 1 Peter 1.12, the writer says that the prophets wrote this stuff in this book, and I will even attribute Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They wrote this book for us on our behalf so we can look at the stories and learn from them specifically how God works, especially during suffering and trials, how God behaves. And we are able to see Joseph's story from what I would say a bird's eye view and understand how God actually was working in there. And we need to realize, God, if God had Joseph, he's got you. He's got this. And so we are to learn in the middle of our darkness, there are lights that are shining in here if you look close enough. Three of them, and they're incredible. The first one is this. Based on the story of Joseph, when it comes to tomorrow, God predicted it. Because he wrote this book. Look at verse 17 and 18. Verse 17 and 18. So verse 16 said Herod was furious. He sent soldiers to kill the boy. And then it says in verse 17... Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. That would be about 600 years earlier. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. Now what he's saying is what was happening where Herod went to kill the innocents was actually written about 600 years before in the book of Jeremiah, prophecy. If you go back to the prophecy, it's Jeremiah 31, but it's a strange prophecy because what it's about, it's about how the Israelites were put into captivity and God gives them prophecy to say, you're not going to weep anymore. And so if you read it in Jeremiah, you're like, I don't see where it talks about babies are going to be killed. But Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying this same prophecy is going to be true for Joseph, Mary, and Jesus where they're going to escape and there's going to be hope. In other words, God wrote this. He predicted this would happen. The story was already done. And so if this is true for Joseph, I believe this is true for you. It's called sovereignty of God. God's got this. Not only does he have it, but he already wrote your story. Some people don't like this idea that God is sovereign. There's a reason for that. The idea that your choices don't seem to matter frustrate a lot of people, but that's not the point. The point is, God already knows what you're going to be confronted with, so trust Him. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Psalm 139. Psalm 139 is a beautiful psalm of David. And the intention of Psalm 139 is to show the intimate care God has for the people He loves. Like it says, God, search me and know me. If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to Sheol, down to the grave, you're also there. But I want you to look at verses 15 and 16. 
Verse 15 says, You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. And then 16, You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. In other words, every day of your life has already been written. Some of you might not like that. But the point of that is, God knows you. And he's got this. Jeremiah, go to Jeremiah 1.5. Jeremiah was a prophet who was asked to preach to people that wouldn't listen and who would want him dead. So he was given a tough job. I wouldn't want that job. I sometimes have that job, but I wouldn't want that job. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, God says this to him. I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb, just like Psalm 139. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. Now some people say, well, okay, so before Jeremiah was born, God knew he'd be a prophet to the nations, he was set apart. But that's for Jeremiah, that's not for the rest of us. So you think that only God planned things for just a few or three people? Or do you think you're included in that? I think God has planned your life exactly the way he wants it. That to me should be heartening. So when it comes to your future, he's got it in his hands. Second thing we learn from Matthew's story is this. When it comes to the present, when it comes to right now, he is presently aware and engaged in the fine details of what's going on. He feels for you right now. If you go to Matthew, look at verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13. So it says, after the wise men were gone, a historical happening, they left, they saw the baby, they left. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up. Flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return. Why? Because, historical reality, Herod is searching for you and the child because he wants to kill the child. So God enters into Joseph's life in the moment he needed to enter. How? Through a miraculous sending of angel Gabriel to wake Joseph up in a dream and say, go, get out of Dodge tonight. What this tells me is that God knows even the, the pain you're feeling right now. Some of you are worried. God knows. I read this psalm whenever our family goes on a trip. When we get in the car, I read Psalm 121. Because listen what it says. I look up to the mountains. Does my help come from there? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Now listen to what it says. He will not let you stumble. The one who watches over you will not slumber. It means he's not sleeping on the job. Indeed, he who watches over Israel, he neither slumbers nor sleeps. 
The Lord himself watches over you. The Lord stands beside you as your protective shade. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord keeps you from all harm and watches over your life. The Lord keeps watch over you as you come and go, both now, meaning in this moment, and forever. And forever. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, Go to the throne of grace so that you can find mercy and grace in your time of need. That's in the moment. So that's another light to, to be shine in the darkness. And the third one is this. When it comes to the question of why, why did God allow this? Why did he allow Herod to chase the baby? Why didn't he just kill Herod with a quick heart attack? God could have done that. Why did he send them off in the middle of the night? Why did he, let, honestly, I ask this question, why did he let Jesus be born without the comforts that we have now with hospitals? And, you know, he could have had a nice house with his security system and an AR, you know, a nice rifle for Joseph to have at the front door. Why didn't he do that? The truth of the matter is God allows pain, he allows suffering because he always purposes it for good. It's for our good. Difficulty is for us, whether we like it or not. He purposes it. In verse 23, it says something very odd. So we have, uh, let's start in verse 21. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother, because Herod died, so they went back to Israel. They went back to Judea. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Because he's wondering, is that vendetta on my son still out there? Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. That means the northern part is no longer in Judea. He's out of the, the realm of Herod's son. He's living up in Galilee. And where does he go to live? So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. And then it says this. This fulfilled what the prophets had said. He will be called a Nazarene. The only problem is, is it never says that in the Old Testament. But it does say the prophets had said. So the idea is that the prophets had in the back of their mind that Jesus would be raised lowly, despised, because Nazareth was not viewed as a good place to be raised. Actually, when Nathaniel Psalm said, is anything come out of Nazareth that's any good? Because it was a small town. So the idea is that the prophets foresaw that Jesus had to go to a place that was lowly despised so that he could reach people who are lowly and despised. So you could say it like this, his pain reached us. His pain was for our good. God purposed it that way. And I believe in the same exact way, your pain is also for your good and also good for the good of those who watch you, like your kids. I want, let's, say, let's say we try to live a life without pain. Consider the story of the single mother whose now adult kids have finished school and are loafing around on her couch. 
eating her food, spending her money, not respecting her space or her desire for privacy. The mom wants them to move on with their lives. She wants to move on with her life, yet, yet, she's scared to death of pushing her children away or feeling any kind of pain, so she says nothing. She's scared to the point of asking, how do I ask them to move out? So her unwillingness to allow pain to be inflicted does not allow her kids to grow up. God wants us to grow up. And he knows sometimes that pain will make us who he's always wanted us to be. Personally, I hate it. I hope God doesn't hear it. I hate pain, but it's made me so much better. So if this is true, these three things are true, that God purposed our life, he's involved in the middle of our life, and he wrote it down, if this is true, then what do I do? Do I have a part to play? When it comes to the scary future, is it up to me to keep everything afloat, to keep all my kids alive, to make sure I have all contingencies taken care of? Is the world on my shoulders? Because if it is, I can't do it. Well, according to this, there's only three things he asks us to do. They're very simple. So I'd say, here's our three steps. Number one is just get up. Look at verse 13 and 20. So the angel comes to Joseph in a dream. And verse 13 says, get up, flee to Egypt, just go, get up, get up. Verse 20, same thing. He's in Judea, but he needs to go to Galilee. And the angel says in verse 20, get up. Actually, that's going back to Israel. We need to stop in the middle of our anxiety and fear, pulling the blankets over our head and wallowing. We need to take them off, pull our feet around to the side of the bed, and just get up. Listen close to this. It's from a book that talks about how we need to realize <laughs> that we have it in us to survive. It says this. There's an insidious quirk to your brain that if you let it, can drive you absolutely batty. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you. You get anxious about confronting somebody in your life or facing a challenge that is bigger than you. That anxiety cripples you and you start wondering why you're so anxious. Now you're becoming anxious about being anxious. Oh no, you're doubly anxious. Now you're anxious about your anxiety, which is actually causing more anxiety. Now here's the problem. Our society today, through the wonders of social media with immediate worldwide news stories, has bred a whole generation of people who believe that having any negative experience and having almost zero ability to do good causes in our heart just floods of anxiety to splash. This has become a borderline epidemic, making many of us overly stressed, overly neurotic, and overly self-loathing. That means, woe is me, I can't do it, I can't make it. 
This paragraph ends like this. Back in Grandpa's day, he would feel like garbage and think to himself, gee whiz, I sure do feel like a cow patty today. But hey, I guess that's just life. Back to shoveling hay. Or listen to what one math teacher said to his students. If you're stuck on a problem, don't sit there and think about it. Just start working on it. Even if you don't know what you're doing, the simple act of working on it will eventually cause the right ideas to show up in your head. And the lesson is simple. Action isn't just the effect of motivation. It is often the cause of it. Taking action, getting up, is often how motivation gets started. It's actually a law of physics. An object in motion stays in motion. Second thing is this. Just do what is right. Do what's right. Do what you know that's in your ability to do what is right. Do it right. So for instance, Joseph in verse 13 is told to flee to Egypt. In verse 14, Joseph goes to Egypt. In verse 20, Joseph's told to go back to Israel. In verse 21, Joseph goes back to Israel. Verse 22, he's warned to leave Judea. Verse 23, he goes to Galilee. He does what God tells him clearly because he knows it's right. So what is right for us? God is very clear about small things in here. Small things. We, 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 we stress over big things. Do what's right. For me, I just wish, often I'll preach this just, if, if everybody in a church would do one thing, it would change the world. I really think if we did Philippians 2 where it says, treat each other better than yourself, it would change our church. It's one small thing. But what are some other small things? Work with your hands. Love one another. Be faithful to the commitments you made. If you're married, stay married. And then what I would say is Scripture always says, wait until God makes it clear. There are times in your life when you need to, you need to move. You know it. But until you know it, trust Him. Wait. So not only get up and do what is right, this third part may be the hardest. Might be the hardest. But we find it at the end of the chapter. Listen closely. So the family went and lived. Live. <laughs> live. That's our job is to live. Live in joy. Live in peace. Live trusting God. Don't quit. Don't cry, don't fret. In fact, what it says about Joseph and Jesus, it says when they lived in Nazareth, Jesus had a regular schedule of going to the, observing the Sabbath at the synagogue every week. And Joseph had such a well-respected name as a carpenter. They knew Jesus by Joseph. They lived a good life, but they lived. By living, I mean enjoy the day. And as Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young says, if you can't be with the one you love, love the one you're with. Just love the one you're with. 
Is it easier to die for Jesus or live for him? I think it's easier to physically die for Jesus than live for him. What do I mean by live? Well, let me give you what I, when I'm not living. When I get anxious, when I worry, I crawl into myself and I get quiet, I get grumpy, and I'm no fun. And often my wife will say, where are you? Where have you been? That's not living. That's sometimes the problem with this thing. We play Candy Crush or Facebook or watch dumb videos all day and hide. We're called to live. Be present. Treat each other better than yourself. So, Joseph did everything God told him to do, and God provided. What's the conclusion? I think the conclusion, I'm thinking through, what is the conclusion? I want the conclusion to be a way of seeing. Here's the conclusion. I want you never, ever, no, not ever, never, ever, ever, forget this. Life can only truly be understood by looking in retrospect. Actually, both the prophecies in here, if you would have read them at the time they were written, you'd have no idea what they're talking about. But looking backwards, God makes sense out of all of it. A lot of the Old Testament prophecies, God has to make sense. It's exactly like life. In the moment, I don't get it. Hang in there. After a few years, when you look back, you go, oh, problem with us is we look to the future and we want to control it. We want it to turn out just the way we want. We try to manipulate. We try to create things to happen instead of, for a large part, trusting God. They said, Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough worries of its own. And what if, what if God has other plans for you than you have for yourself? Can you trust him with those plans? I'll be honest with you, when I think of the future, I'm scared. But I have God. What do you do if you don't have God? You know what, as, I, as I'm doing this right now and I'm folding up this folder, I'm still married. That fear I had on that flight from California to Grand Rapids, I sur- I'm surviving. I don't know if my wife will want to live with me anymore, but today, we're still, we're still married. And my daughter, she survived. Don't let worry destroy you. Get up. Do what you know is right. And live. 